back to the Brando and Joe podcast. Our guest today is Steve Rader. He received his BS in mechanical engineering from Rice University. They got to pull out the notes for this one. Currently works at NASA as a program manager for NASA's Tournament Lab and the Center of Excellence for Collaborative Innovation. Welcome, Steve. Thanks Welcome. for joining us today. Hey, thanks. Glad to be here. Yeah, we're, we're excited too. Um, we had on Allison Casey, who interned for NASA. Um, and that was like our kind of like foot in the door. We got to learn a little bit about NASA and the company. So to have you come on now and just tell us a little bit more about what you do is is super exciting for us. I know we said before, like, who doesn't like to hear about the company, NASA? Like, it's so I mean, cool. You know, to clarify, <laughs> we're a government agency, so not really a company. Oh, we learned about that uh, on a previous episode about like, government agencies and then yeah. what was it brand it was like quasi government oh, agencies yeah, like jpl and uh tennessee valley authority there's a bunch of the kind of weird like federally funded uh, research development facilities apl applied physics laboratory it's like something that i feel like you wouldn't know unless someone like you was like telling us yeah. <laughs> like, oh, it's yeah. government <laughs> the government's crazy big and then there's it's really like one day i was like oh we work with so we work with other government agencies and i I started trying to map out the federal government and I'm, I just gave up. I was like, oh no, there's, it's way too big. So uh, yeah, kind of crazy. <laughs> As we uh, said at the beginning, uh, you're a program manager and I pulled the notes for the, the long name. Um, it seems as like we're reading through the description that you get to do like a whole bunch of cool stuff. And as like we generally ask our guests um, with that, I feel like comes like a whole bunch of different tasks you do. So are you able to give us kind of like a, a day-to-day in your life? Are there like certain things sure. that you do a lot or is it really, you know, yeah. varied? I think I have one of the coolest jobs in the world. So yeah, I, we, we talk <laughs> about that a lot in our team that we, that we have a really cool vantage point. So our group, this center of excellence you talk about, um, we've been around for about 10 years and our job is to help really projects all across NASA and across the entire federal government to learn about what open innovation and open talent are and why they're important and and then provide them access, like give them a, a way to use those new tools. And a lot of that is we talk about how fast technology is changing and kind of the tsunami of tech that's coming at everyone. And that if you really want to innovate and be on the cutting edge and, and have your organization not become irrelevant, then you need tools to find those technologies to be the starting point of your innovation, right? Because you can't just Google, hey, what's the latest in you know this technology? It doesn't work that way. There's too many things going on. And it turns out that crowdsourcing and open talent are necessary tools to kind of keep people uh, aware of what's happening out there and to, to tap into all the brains out there that can, can really already be accessing uh, these solutions and the ideas that you need, right? So that's our job is to go help kind of match make and find those projects that, hey, you know, they're trying to solve a hard problem. Uh, they need to actually have a 10x solution, you know, something that, that's maybe really heavy and we're trying to get into space. We would want it to be a lot lighter, a lot less power consumption, better re- reliability, all those kinds of things, right? So we work on finding people that have those problems or projects that have those problems. And then we have a set of about 50 different uh, crowd communities. So platforms like TopCoder and HeroX 
and Maven and, you know, there's, we, we have 50 of them <laughs> and each one has anywhere from 10,000 users up to 70 million users. And we work with them to basically get one of those contractors, basically one of those platforms to host uh, challenges. And sometimes they'll do that for us and sometimes they'll do it uh, to get us a product, but they're gonna go run a crowdsourcing challenge and bring us back a solution. And that's really handy because we're able to move really quickly and uh, access people really all over the world. Like we've had challenges that had 5,000 submissions uh, and have gotten us these really cool uh, solutions from other industries and ideas from other industries. And so when you say, what do I do during the day? <laughs> um, I run a team of about 17 and we are currently executing about 90 challenges or projects. Uh, and so we're always kind of working issues that come up or we're kind of training new people. Uh, we're kind of looking at, at the statistics that are coming out of these. Are we, are we doing a good job? Do we need to tweak things? We're digitizing all of our processes right now, trying to become very much digital natives. So we've got a, a whole effort kind of taking our Salesforce database and making sure that we're gathering all the right data to tell us what, how we're doing, uh, as, as well as automating that workflow, right? Um, we're working a bunch of advanced kinds of projects to, to bring on, a, for instance, an innovation academy where we can train more people around NASA on how this works and then how they can actually learn to do it so that more people can do this. My, our goal is to get every person at NASA scientist, engineer, or otherwise to know about how to use open innovation and open talent and be able to access somebody, access somebody who can actually go and, and make that happen. Cause you, you can tell people about things all day long, but if you're not there to hold their hand through something new and help them with the paperwork and point them to the right website, it's really hard. Like people won't do it. And so we've been really successful in getting that. So the real answer to your question is I spend all day on Zoom meetings, but <laughs> cooler than that because of the cool things I get to, to the, the projects people are working on and the problems they're trying to solve, the solutions the crowd's coming up with. Like we have a world of truly amazing people that are bringing to bear uh, just these amazing intellects and amazing solutions and they're helping NASA really excel. Yeah. When you speak to kind of the work you're doing, the word that kind of comes to my mind is that crowdsourcing. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to kind of dive into that. If you could explain what that is for our sure. listeners and kind of talk about what that entails, because I would love to hear, sure. and it sounds like it's a big part of the work you do. Yeah, it's funny because it got me into this. I read Jeff Howe's book called Crowdsourcing, uh, who he was the Wired editor who kind of coined the term or is at least credited with coining the term. And I read that back in like 2010 and I immediately was like, everything has changed. We got to figure that out. So basically, uh, if you're familiar with Wikipedia, that's crowdsourcing. So it is a community of people that come together around a platform, right? A digital platform, a website. Um, and they're provided uh, membership on that that uh, allows them to contribute in some way, right? So... Topcoder, for instance, is a platform. You can go out in there and look at it. It's a platform where you can join it 
and become part of that community. And it's all data scientists and software engineers. And the idea is you're joining it for a couple of different reasons. Usually one, maybe you just want to find other people that have the passion for software that you have passion for or data science. Maybe you're trying to learn something new. Maybe you want to try out some skills before you try them out at work, right? Where it really matters or at school, right? Uh, we had one challenge where um, this freshman at Berkeley won $100,000 and he was literally just trying to learn machine learning. Like he was basically reading through the, 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 the steps to do it and downloaded the free tool. And it got to the part where it said, uh, train now train your algorithm with all the data you can. Well, he knew how to use Blender, which is used for uh, video game characters. And he was able to synthetically generate a ton of data and train his model better than any of the expert data scientists. And so it's that kind of thing where you're tapping into people. But these crowdsourcing platforms, they're designed to where they can connect people, connect them to new learning, new opportunities. Challenges are one way to do that. Prize challenges where you say, hey, anybody who can solve this problem gets $10,000 or $100,000 or a million dollars. It depends on how big the problem is, right? And then people go off and work on them. And it's amazing. We call there's different incentives for different people. Uh, we call it the four G's, gold, guts, glory, and good, right? So if it's all about the Benjamins for you, then it's money, right? You, It's that prize. Can I get that prize for the minimal amount of work? For a lot of people, it's they really like to work on hard problems. Uh, and then some people are trying to get a reputation. I knew this one data scientist who he couldn't get hired in the biotech area where he wanted to be a data scientist because he didn't have any bioscience experience. So he went and worked on a bunch of challenges around bioscience and data science and ended up winning and was then able to say, hey, look, for the National Institutes of Health, I did this algorithm and he got a job like that. So reputation is another thing. And some people just like to contribute to altruistic things. And people will actually look at NASA sometimes and say, hey, we want to be part of this space mission. Uh, and so they contribute. So the incentives are really interesting. There's a great book by Clay Shirky called uh, a Cognitive Surplus that kind of gets into all this kind of idea. But it's when you first see it, you're like, why do people use their spare time to go work on hard technical problems? Um, but it's funny, we don't ask that same question. Why do, you, why do people go spend like four or five hours and several hundred dollars at an NFL game, right? I mean, we wouldn't question that in a second, but somebody's going to spend four hours and an evening on a hard problem. And we're like, are you crazy? And there's lots of those people out there. People don't like to admit it, but they actually love what they learn to do. They love their major. They love what they learn to do. And they're just looking for an outlet. And a lot of times jobs don't provide that. Uh, we talked to one, one researcher who helped us with differential privacy, and she was a researcher in that area, but she actually got on this challenge and put her own solution in. And she said she ended up winning. And she said, my boss, my research boss never would have let me go down this line of inquiry because it's too risky, right? So people want to have their own agency in this and get out there and do their own thing. So it's kind of interesting. I 100% agree, especially with that, like people like what they do and sometimes you can't do that stuff at work. So if you find that out- Isn't that crazy? That like the, especially with coding, um, I haven't done nearly as much as coding as uh, probably people you've been talking about, but the little time I've had 
with it, like that problem solving aspect, when you finally, when it finally works after all the time it hasn't worked oh, and yeah. that it finally works and you're just sitting there like, yes, <laughs> yeah. thank God. Yeah. Well, and, and people have skills, but they don't necessarily have the problem to go solve, right? Like it's, it's rare that you find someone who's like, oh, I have a problem and I have the skills to go do it. And so it's this matchmaking that's happening. And this is why hackathons are really popular, right? Because then you get the social aspect of getting together over a long weekend and really scrapping it out with the problem. Uh, and, and that's a source, that's kind of a, a version of crowdsourcing as well, right? Is hackathons. So it is that kind of, how do I exercise my, my creative skills? And people are aching to do that. And when you're in business, a lot of what you're doing is execution. You're, you're trying to get a product out the door. You're trying to, you're not doing a lot of innovation um, and companies need more innovation right now, but it's really hard when you're making money on this stuff, but you're not making money on innovation for like five years or three years. You're like, you know, it's not an immediate return. And so it's harder for businesses to say, no, you should spend time, but more and more businesses are actually encouraging folks to spend time innovating and bringing ideas into reality. Yeah, Joe and I uh, last semester learned a lot about like the differences between like intrinsic, which is internal motivation and extrinsic, like external motivation. And I remember reading about a company in Australia, and I'm forgetting the name at this moment that had like a day where they just basically allowed their employees to work on whatever they wanted, as long as it was for the company. And that and, and that company got so many more positive results out of that one day than they did from from weeks and months of work. And I feel like that follows that exact same like formula that you're speaking yeah. to, Steve. Yeah, people, um, innovation is this really tricky thing because it is actually very personal. Uh, we don't like it is. It's really about vulnerability. Like if someone's like, "Give me your innovative idea," like you might have some really crazy idea, but if you, if you share that and then they laugh at you or they say that's, that's dumb, that'll never work, then like that's the risk you're taking, right? And when operations and selling things and making things is your only focus, then you actually, like you'll see new hires will go into meetings and they'll be like, well, can't we do this? And they'll have some great new idea. And everybody in the meeting will be like, no, because you don't understand it'll never work and won't do this and won't do this. And it's it's not that they hate innovation. It's just they're trying to get something out the door. And it does actually take a lot of energy to get a new idea in. And they, they just they're kind of conditioned to reject those things. But what happens in an organization is that young engineer gets a little bit crushed. And then they try it again, thinking, well, maybe that was a one off and they get crushed again. And by the fourth year, they're not raising their hand on a new idea. They know what's going to happen. And in many organizations, like Dilbert cartoons are real, right? Uh, they, they, are, they are the real deal when it's like, no one's going to like this. Or the boss is going to be like, well, that, that'll never work. And that's the kind of culture you've got you've to get around your head around and say, look, we're not going to be that way. We're going to be innovative. We're going to set aside time different than our production time to innovate. And the rules are different. Um, if you want to have a group conversation that results in innovation, then you have to be able to listen for and not reject 
ideas, even though in your head you're like, hmm, that's probably not going to work. But if you can actually listen to those ideas, then you'll hear more ideas come. And I always like to say that the really innovative ideas are actually three unworkable ideas deep, right? Like you have to listen to them and think about the issues, but then they spawn some new solution and then that spawns some new solution and that spawns some. And then you're like, oh, now that actually might work. But if you're going to automatically be like, well, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to scrutinize this first idea and tell you why it won't work. You won't get that next idea because as soon as you start analyzing it and telling it, the folks why it won't work, everyone gets the message, can't go down that path. And that path might actually be the successful one. And this is why open innovation is so great because you're getting lots of parallel processing with people who are on platforms that no one knows they're going to submit something. Nobody cares. I call crowdsourcing challenges the one place in your entire life that you can do whatever you want and fail spectacularly and no one will care. Like, and I mean that in the, if you're successful, they totally will care. But if you don't get it, no one cares. You're just one of another thousand that didn't make it through, which is fine because innovation is equally about failure. And it, we are so afraid of failure in our jobs and at school. And honestly, they're constructed in ways to make you not want to fail, right? But failure is how you learn. Failure is actually how you, you try something. Like, go look at the Wright brothers were not the first ones to try to learn to fly. They learned to fly because 150 other folks before them failed spectacularly, and they actually were building on the learnings from that. It's the same with this kind of stuff, except in crowdsourcing, you can actually do a lot of this in parallel really, really quickly. It's a, it's a great notion. And I think, Steve, unintentionally, you shouted out a previous episode we'll have, and I'll coin Brandon's term about failing forward. Um, yeah. And, it's, <laughs> and it's, it's a great point. Um, and I want to pick your brain about something we read on your profile about the future of work. Is this mm -hmm. kind of what you mean? Like um, the innovative mindset of certain organizations and trying to foster that yeah. idea of innovation and creating ideas and not like you said, just like after a couple of years, people are gonna be like, you know what, I'm just gonna do my job. No one cares what I think. And you know, I can work my nine to five and just- Yeah, so, so, okay. So let me set the stage because it's gonna be a longer conversation. Um, <laughs> are you ready? So turns out, uh, you know, I've talked about how fast technology is moving and how that's, that rate is getting even faster and that it's this tsunami. So part of this is we know the world's changing, but, and we know there's a lot of technology going on, but a lot of people don't realize how big that change is. 90% of all scientists that have ever lived on planet Earth are alive today nine times more than the entire history of dead scientists that wrote all the textbooks that you're reading right now, right? Except this 99 times as many people, they are better equipped because they have CRISPR and machine learning and 3D printing and, you know, cheap robotics uh, and software APIs, like open source code, so many different tools that basically have tremendous complexity that underneath the covers, but that 
you can learn usually with a few YouTube videos, right? I mean, you can, you can literally learn data science and be up and running learning algorithms within hours, right? It's kind of crazy. Uh, you might not know what you're doing, but you can at least get started, right? Uh, um, a metal 3D printer, you can go buy for $10,000 and start becoming a manufacturer of precision parts in your garage, right? I mean, you can go edit jeans for a $200 CRISPR kit. You really have to know what you're doing there. Lord, <laughs> I hope you do if you're doing that. But this is the world we live in where there is so much going on that applies to lots of different areas. And so this is why open innovation is important. It's why innovation is important. However, when we were looking at this, what we found was these communities of you know tens of thousands to millions of people weren't just doing crowdsource challenges. They were doing gig work and freelancing and all sorts of interesting other things, but they were doing it on these platforms. And we're like, what's that's kind of related because we we found like freelancer.com. They actually were doing both contests and freelance work, right? And then we found Topcoder really was doing a bunch of contests to develop software, but then they actually would hire some of their crowd to be freelancers that would actually run the projects. And we're like, something's going on. And so we, we actually came across, I think it was 2017, Upwork and the Freelancers Union like uh, commissioned a study uh, by Edelman Intelligence. And I show these slides all the time still, even though they're from 2017, because they show these predictions that say people are moving out of the full-time workforce and into the gig economy at three times the rate. So this was 2017. They had a prediction by 2027, 2028, that there would be more people in the gig economy than in the full-time economy. And then COVID happened and it sped everything up. And so we are now in a world where a lot of people want to work remotely. A lot of people are getting in the gig economy and companies are realizing something that is true, which is, again, it's really weird how the world works where the right solution comes at just the right time. Like crowdsourcing came at just the time that technology was getting too hard to navigate, right? This similarly, companies have been really working the same way for 120 years. And what we're finding is this pace of change is breaking that model, which is when we say the future of work, what we're really saying is the entire world is in this huge transition and companies used to recruit and retain full-time employees, right? And they, a lot of them still do, right? That's what's probably going to have to change because when skills and expertise are changing so fast, if you're only recruiting and retaining, then your employees are immediately becoming obsolete because you can't, you haven't, the infrastructure to keep them up to speed is they don't have the capacity. They don't have the budgets set aside for that. And more importantly, they don't have a good way to move people onto the next thing, right? There's, and, and what happens is companies build up, build up, and then they have all this pressure and they end up laying off a thousand people, right? And, and there's some great studies out there. The World Economic Forum came out with a study in 2020, shows future work, says, look, 80, something like 85 million jobs are going away but 97 million are being created. Like, but what's the problem? Well, all the people that knew how to do these 
five million don't know how to do this 97 million. So this upskilling and lifelong learning is usually important. So this is where the gig economy and the way people, and it's really independent work and platform-based work, it's really changed things, right? Freelancing used to be that gutsy person who quit their job, went out and they said, I'm gonna do this. And they quickly found that they had to do all their own marketing. That marketing was all within 20 miles of where they lived. They had to do all their taxes, all their accounting, all, and they ended up like, I wanna do this on my own because I'm passionate about it. And they still get to do only that passion 5% of the time because the rest of the time they're running this business, right? And it was only those people that had spunk and could, could get out there and do that. Now you've got platforms that like, look, I want to make some extra bucks. I'm going to hop on, do a little Uber tonight. I'll do a little Grubhub tomorrow. I'll get on, like I can go do Etsy on the weekends. Like, and for a lot, for Etsy, that's an entire global marketplace. Like what other store, like you used to go to the park and be like, hey, I want to sell candles. You can get on Etsy and it's a whole different ball game, right? You're selling to the entire world. If you get on Freelancer, you might be working for somebody in Indonesia. You might be working for somebody in Europe. You might, and these platforms, they get you paid. They, they deal with a lot of that stuff. They deal with some of the taxation stuff. They deal with, not all of it, you still have to pay taxes. Don't get me wrong. But like they give you the tools. If you get on Gra uh, GrabCAD, it's something like 12 million users on GrabCAD, all like making CAD designs for fun. But a lot of companies will get onto GrabCAD and look to see who are the top winners of contests and who are the, and they'll just reach out to them and hire them, right? Or hire them for gig work. So there's an entire way that what we're seeing is gig workers and people that are independent, they are lifelong learners. They're gonna go and find what skills that they want, that they get, they figure out how to go take the right Coursera course and get the right experience, maybe do some open innovation to reinforce that. And then they're building their portfolio. That, that Edelman Intelligence survey, it surveyed full-time freelancers. And what it found, it asked them the question, how much money would it take for you to return back into the full-time workforce? 50% of them answered, there is no amount of money that you could pay me to get me to go back to a full-time job. I believe it. Wow. Right? And, well, your <laughs> generation is totally on board with it. Yeah. It's the way you're People wired, like, right? you know, the their own their own uh, circumstances. They ultimately want agency. And, and they will take on crappy work. They will go do really crappy work that if you were full-time and somebody assigned me, you'd be like, I can't believe you just assigned that to me. But <laughs> if you're trying to make a buck, you're like, well, I'll do that. That, you know, I don't care. I'll, I'll go do that. And people will, people don't have to do one thing. They can do lots of things. And so the future of work, I think, is where organizations start to learn how to create labor ecosystems. And by that, I mean, you'll see this in a lot of startups they'll actually not go hire a bunch of full-time people. They will hire freelancers, but they won't hire them as one-offs like an Uber driver. They'll be like, okay, I liked you. You did good work. I want to start sending you my stuff. And you get a little bit of an, of an agreement that, hey, you're my go-to person. And if you're not around, maybe you go to your second string or whatever, right? But you start building this team 
Sometimes it is one-off. Sometimes you don't, you know, you need a graphic. You don't need graphics the rest of the time. You get a one-off. But the rest of the time you're building this team and, and that team it has an endless bench, right? If that person's busy doing something else, you go to your second string. If they're not there, you just go to the platform. And yes, it's a little more work to find somebody from scratch. That's why you want to build relationships. But the people that you work with, they learn how you work. They learn how. I talked to this one guy who does event planning, right? He, he runs events. And he had built one of these freelance teams. He goes, I have my favorite videographer. I've got my favorite booker. I've got my favorite web guy. I've got all these things. And they're all in different countries and they're doing different things. Some are local. He goes, I added up one. And he only uses them when he does an event. So they're only doing it job by job. So he doesn't pay for them to sit around, right, while he's trying to find work. He goes, I added up one day how much if I were to have to hire all these people full time, I would have to actually pay out like a million dollars a year and I'm paying like 25K. And, and it like it's orders of magnitude difference. And it's not that the freelancers who get in the shaft, they're only working a tiny piece and they're doing other jobs to fill the rest of their day. So, so when Houston has an oil crisis, well, they're working for companies all over the world. So they're not going to lose their their income or you know what I'm saying? They'll have a little dip in one of their clients, but they've got multiple. So I think it's this people getting agency, people fitting into the lifelong learning, companies learning how to actually build these ecosystems. And honestly, I think in 20 years, we're going to ask how, how for 120 years was it okay for companies to be your only option, to be, to be like, almost owning your time to have you chained to a desk. Like, you know, you kind of, if you ever watch the movie office space, it's kind of old now, but like, it's awesome. Right. And it really is. There's an Ohio, Ohio university study that came out a few years ago that, that said the average productivity in full-time employment is 37%. That is three out of every eight hours. I thought it'd be lower. Honestly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> crazy is that's not all on the person right that's your crappy meetings yeah. or your bunch of crap processes that that take forever but if you actually start to use this this whole kind of more flexible ecosystem everybody wins companies get more efficient people get the work they want people can do the work they enjoy uh and and if you think about it free market really starts to happen right and we'll look back on that time and not only say, I can't believe that companies owned us. I think we'll also look back and companies will say, how did we ever even make money? It is so inefficient. You know how much overhead a company pays for a full-time employee? I know it's a lot. <laughs> it's like one and a half to 2.7 times their salary. And that's for lawyers and HR and training and benefits and security and IT. Now you got to do some of that. And, and some of that's going to be done by these platforms. Like the best platforms are going to provide you training. They're going to give you advice on what the next trend is. They're going to help you kind of find benefits, right? They're going to help you do all the things that the HR and managers do. And I actually think it decouples the business process because human labor and business are actually two different priority systems, right? Humans, they want interesting work and to have community and to make a difference, right? I mean, there's these motivations that they have. Companies, they 
have to, by law, make money for quarterly earnings for shareholders. Like their business is to make money, right? And I don't fault them for that. That's the programming they have. I do fault some of the processes we have, but that's <laughs> there. When you put people inside of companies as their full-time gig, you've basically coupled two different competing priorities that are going to clash. And I, I will say Office Space and Dilbert Cartoons basically characterize that conflict, right? And it's it's that conflict that you start to decouple when you go to a, a, a more agile uh, work base, right? Where you're starting to, to get these ecosystems because now you're going to get just the right skills to just the right tasks when you need them. And you're not paying overhead for that. You're basically getting them and, and releasing them, right? And you can start to use AI to actually organize your time, to put together high-performing teams, to do a lot of the things that humans were trying to to do in a human way with a company and a culture, but now you can do it over here with AI, right? And you can have them help assemble people and get them trained in a way that you're maximizing the human aspect and minimizing that inefficiency. And now people are really motivated by the money when it it's there, but it's money for the that project, right? It's like, oh yeah, I need some money. I'm going to do work I don't want to do, but I'm choosing to do it. Or the person who's like, I don't even care about the money. I'm doing it because I want to get this experience or I want to work with these people or I want to accomplish this. So you're going to get higher performing teams that are more passionate doing it. Now, there's a question about corporate process and, and culture. And I think that that's going to be on the company. How welcoming are you to these people? How much do you get them to work with your people? How well have you documented and, and, and done digital workflow? How well are you in the digital world? Anybody who's not digital native in the next 10 years are going away. Like they're just going away <laughs> because companies that are digital, native digital, and I don't mean Office 365. I mean, they know what data repositories are. They know that you touch data once they've digitized their workflow, that as soon as there's a process, they have the analysis skills to understand that process and digitize it so that it, it can operate. And then you have your people focus on the people skills, the being nice to one another, customer service, creativity, understanding innovation. Um, right now, we deploy humans to do workflow. How crazy is that? Like we have someone who knows that, oh, that piece of paper has to get signed by that person and that person. Oh, you better have a conversation with them. And so that we can get it over here and then somebody's got to enter it into this system, but then print something out and say, like, it's crazy that people are still working in paper and, and don't understand digital. Um, and, and those companies are not able to take advantage of internet of things because it has to have somewhere where the data to go. They're not going to be able to establish the AI factories that are necessary to actually create all of the automation and AI that they'll need because they won't have the infrastructure to do it. Uh, there's the famous uh, memo out of uh, Amazon by Bezos, right? That's like in 2002, he's like, everyone's going to design software that's open, that lets you get in and get the data and, and is accessible nowhere where you are on the network. And anyone who doesn't do this is fired. And, and it turned, I mean, if you wonder why they are such a behemoth, it is that memo. Because now digital processes end to end they've just been optimizing those over and over and over. 
anyway, I go, I digress. What was the question? <laughs> I think you answered it. <laughs> well, it's so, it's crazy because I'm thinking about this from the lens of what Joe and I are getting our degree in, in like IO psychology and business psychology. And you touched on so many different topics that we discuss on a daily basis, like psychological safety, learning and development. Uh, there was a piece obviously about AI in there. And then there was even like performance improvement, engagement, teams. Like these are all things that we are learning about on a daily basis, yeah. which one, when you're talking about the future of work is making personally me feeling really well about this. And I hope Joe as well, that we're like in the right spot because we're learning about all these things. Yeah. But also like we're seeing that this trend is going across many different industries at many different times. And yeah. I think that's a sign of the times for sure. Uh, we can definitely say that we are, we're putting in work in school. We're doing a podcast. We also do our own internships. Yeah. So it's like that diversification of the type of work we're doing. You're already seeing it in just the way that our grad program set up. Right. Right. So I feel, yeah. Absolutely. I feel like Steve, you hit so much. <laughs> uh, it's, it's awesome. And, and what's cool is a lot of this is happening organically. It's not like somebody master planned it. It's, I think we as humans just sensed changes in the air and we need to start adapting to it because people were moving into the freelance economy before there was a market and there were, but, but they were, a lot of them were doing it while still maintaining their job. Like it is really interesting kind of the way the migration's working and the way learnings work. Like I don't take an auto mechanics class. I get on YouTube and I figure out how to change my, you know, headlights or something. Right. I mean, and if you think about it, the way our brains are wired, we're, we're likely to start doing more and more of this really micro training, the just in time training that is coupled with doing, which the whole idea of going, I think college will still stick around. Don't, I, I don't want to say that your college would be, but I think college is going to be a lot more about critical thinking and innovation. And it's less about the individual skills that you can learn that you, you know, like you need to understand the large math, but then when you get ready to do it, you're going to need a little refresher course, right? And you're going to need somebody to take you that neck, that last mile. Um, I always envision or I always think of, of uh, in the matrix, you know, where they just plug in and like, okay, now you can fly a helicopter. <laughs> there are similarities to the way we're learning now that are kind of like that. Uh, if you look at what's on Khan Academy with mastery based learning and, these kind of little snippets that people are getting every day. And uh, I think there's programs like is it Headway or one of those where it's actually using AI to give you hints on what to learn next based on what you've said your goals are. Uh, these are the futures I think we're looking at. And then uh, AI is going to play a huge role. But I think if we do it right, the role is going to unlock more and more human potential rather than just take our place. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you that the, the times are changing. And if you change with them, there's so much opportunity out there for you to take. We've talked about AI in our past podcasts. Um, and there are some people that are afraid of it because maybe we just don't understand it. But the AI or AI software is here. It's not going anywhere. If you can learn how to use it, um, use it in your work, your everyday life, it can only benefit yeah. you. Um, Absolutely. I feel like we could well, talk about this forever. <laughs> yeah. Well, technology's agnostic, right? It's, it's what we do with it that makes it good or bad. Right. And I think there's a healthy recognition of the power of AI right now that's going on. 
that says, hey, we need to think through the frameworks that we use so that we don't step in it because the greater good something can do usually means the greater bad something can do as well, right? And so uh, we do need to watch it all. That doesn't mean you, you're afraid of it. It means you, you need to actually become very familiar with it so that you don't misuse it, right? I mean, if you look like there's a bunch of uh, elderly people right now who don't understand email and computers and just click on whatever pops up, and because they are afraid to use it, they don't use it enough to fend off the bad stuff, right? And so part of this is if someone's really afraid, you should probably recommend that they use it more, right? Because this you need to be able to protect yourself uh, and understand it. Um, but yeah, it's it's a whole new world uh, and it's, it's going to be interesting to, to watch. It's a good thing we have uh, you as the face of the future of work, <laughs> understand. Um, so for the sake of uh, the time for the podcast, um, I know obviously we could talk about this forever. <laughs> um, do you have like one last little piece of advice that you could give out to our students or the people that are listening on, you know, general oh, career sure. stuff? Oh gosh. Uh, one little, there's no, never one. Little, <laughs> I, um, I would say um, don't let fear keep you from living your life. Um, a new job, a new thing, like it takes guts to go do. And if you go look at the most successful people, it's the people that have guts, the people that are like, you know what? Yeah, I'm going to quit this job to go do this, or I'm going to go do freelancing or whatever that is for you. Like, don't be afraid. I would say also learn, like become a lifelong learner, never not be enrolled in some kind of learning every week have something you're learning and trying it out go explore be curious um and then just learn how to enjoy like don't don't get stuck in the rat race of i've got to have what everyone else like figure out what you like and get it and keep that and try to get a nice big social safety net of people not a social safety net of of other stuff but Find your friends, find your tribe, find your people that that can support you because life's hard and you're going to hit some bad times and you want people around you uh, that you can count on and that will be there for you. Uh, and I think that goes to work as well. Like you want to create this, this network of people that basically advise you. Always have a mentor, right? Always have somebody who's giving you advice maybe have three. It's okay, right? Mentor other people. Always be giving. That stuff comes back to you. The more you give uh, and help other people, the more they're going to be like, I want to work with them again, right? Be that person. Don't be right. Be the one they want to work with again. Don't like, they're like, oh, he was right. But man, I do not want to work with that guy again because he had to be right all the time. That used to be me. I, I was that and, and I try not to do that anymore, right? Because uh, relationships are going to trump pretty much all that. Like, let people be wrong sometimes. Have some grace for people. That's okay. People are going to mess up. You're going to mess up. Guess what? It's a nice little thing. So those are my things. I don't know if any of that's helpful at all. But Perfect. Uh, I, I think that 
I think that's super helpful. And honestly, it kind of echoes some of the stuff we've had guests say on, on this podcast in the past, whether it's like talking about networking or getting to talk to people, or it's just kind of taking opportunity and not being afraid to make those opportunities become a reality. So I think like Steve, you really spoke to a lot of the things that we talk about or learn about on a daily basis. And we definitely appreciate your perspective and insight on that too. Great. Well, I, I've enjoyed this conversation. Thanks, guys. This has been great. You sounds like you had a great podcast going. Oh, we appreciate it. Thanks for joining <laughs> us. We love to have yeah. you on. Yeah, we really do appreciate it. All right. See ya. Okay. Thank you, Steve. Bye. That was such a great episode with Steve. I feel like it was really cool to hear about the type of work that he does at NASA because when we started, you can tell that it's not necessarily an I.O. background, but he touched on so many different I.O. concepts that we go over in our like day-to-day life. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. I feel like a lot of our episodes, we talk about like the current work environment, which makes sense, of course. But to hear someone's perspective about the future of work from like his point of view and his experiences was super, super interesting. Like it's, it's the stuff that I've never really thought about before. Yeah, I know uh, like talking about people who are doing gig work or things of that nature are going to be topics that we discuss in IO in the future because I know that it's going to change company culture and compensation and just the organizational structure. So talking about it was really cool. And I just feel like we need to have him on and have him debate with some of the IO minds that we have that we've had on this podcast in the past. I think that'd be really cool. Yeah, if you brought that up to me about like gig work, I probably would have not like shot it down right away, but just been like, no, I don't agree. But after hearing him talk about it and like his rationale behind it, I was like, oh, damn, like that actually kind of makes sense. Um, I'm excited to like follow him more and like read a little bit about what he has to say and just like see his thoughts on it. Yeah. And as we learned from Casey in the episode that we had with her, NASA's always like in the front runner of innovation. So to have him on here and to speak to that is definitely something that I would say is a privilege for us. And we appreciate Steve coming on and speaking with us about his work, Um, but definitely a great episode. um, And we are looking forward to having you guys next week. Thank you for listening. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you guys as always.